in John chapter 16 and verse 16, where we pick up today, Jesus essentially repeats what he has already said in John chapter 14 and verse 19. Back there in chapter 14 and verse 19, he said, A little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And here in John 16 and verse 16, Jesus says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. Though these are not the exact same words, these phrases are close enough that it's hard to justify giving the phrases different meanings. When Jesus is crucified, both the world and the disciples will see him no more. That's what he meant in John 14, and that's what he means in John 16. The hour is coming when the world will see me no more. In a little while, you will see me no more. This refers to his crucifixion. But after a little while, the disciples will see him. But Jesus says, the hour is coming when the world will not see me, but you will see me. So this has to be most primarily a reference to the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Since even unbelievers, that is the world, could have seen the resurrected Christ. He wasn't just resurrected in our hearts. He wasn't just resurrected figuratively. He was physically, bodily resurrected. He ate a piece of fish. So even the world could have seen him in his resurrected body. So when Jesus says that there's a time coming when the world isn't going to see me, but you are going to see me, this has to be a reference to the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the post-Pentecost age afterwards, where we cannot behold... Christ's presence among us, nor does the world perceive Christ's presence among us by using our physical eyes to see the body of Christ, but where the eyes of faith are necessary to perceive Christ's presence with us. We see Christ with us with the eyes of faith, by, that He is among us by His Spirit. So Jesus is still developing the same theme as he has been doing over the last couple of chapters. Namely, he's speaking of the post-Pentecost age. He's telling us what's going to happen at the coming of the Spirit. Remember, this is all, even though we've been spending several weeks studying this, and we're going to be in this uh, upper room discourse for several more weeks, remember that this was all one night. Jesus, it's Jesus' last night with his disciples before he's crucified. And so he's, he's developing this theme of, I'm going away, but the Spirit is coming. This is a major emphasis of this section of John's Gospel. And he continues with that in the passage we're looking at today. And Jesus tells the disciples here in this passage before us today that they're about to experience pain, which is going to be analogous to or similar to the pain of childbirth. That's in verses 20 to 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish 
for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, or in like manner, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This is the main idea of the sermon this morning. The pain that the disciples of Jesus experience is like the pain of childbirth. So let's begin by looking at the pain that the disciples of Jesus experience. And we need to look at two aspects of the pain that the disciples of Jesus experience. First of all, in the immediate context, there was the impending pain of Jesus being arrested and crucified and the pain that the disciples that he's speaking to here in John chapter 16 would go through immediately on account of that. It was traumatic, no doubt, for them to be in the garden with Jesus and for a band of soldiers to show up with weapons and torches and so on and so forth and for Jesus to be taken from them. It was traumatic for them, no doubt, to see from a distance Jesus being put on a mock trial and unjustly condemned. And it was traumatic for them, no doubt, to see their Lord Jesus crucified. Jesus' crucifixion caused them pain and caused them sorrow. After living a sinless life as our covenantal representative, in other words, on our behalf, living a sinless life for us, Jesus, the next day after He says these words, was to bear the penalty that we deserve for our sin. Again, as our covenantal representative. Just like Adam represented mankind in the first place, and when he sinned, it was counted as if we had all sinned. So when Jesus was sinless, as the second Adam, the covenantal representative, it was counted as if all whom he represents are sinless. And when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross as a second Adam, as a covenantal representative, so that it was counted as if the sin that we have committed has already been punished. Because Jesus, our covenantal representative, has been punished in our stead. This was traumatic, not only because the wrath of God was being poured out on a man, but because this man was innocent, because this man was unjustly condemned. This was traumatic for the disciples to experience and to undergo and to witness And it's safe to say that they didn't fully understand at this point the implications of Jesus' death and what he was accomplishing for them. Nevertheless, or maybe nevertheless is not the right word, but in this way, the first aspect of the pain that we need to examine this morning was the impending pain that the disciples were about to experience the next day as Jesus was crucified. Then... In verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in you you may have peace. And again, this is a roundabout way of giving us peace, isn't it? Telling us that we're going to have sorrow, and we're going to be in anguish, but then don't worry, it will give way to joy. Telling us that we're going to uh, suffer, that we're going to be persecuted, and so on and so forth. This is a roundabout way of giving us peace, a roundabout way of giving us joy. 
but it is a way of giving us peace and joy nevertheless because we understand when these things happen it's all going according to a master plan this is what jesus means when he says i have said these things to you that in you you may, that in me you may have peace and he says again in this world you will have tribulation we know that Christians are not exempt from the common sufferings, common to all mankind. You think even, for example, of COVID, which is raging all around us right now. There are uh, people that we know who are sick with COVID. Christians are not exempt from getting diseases. Christians are not even exempt from dying of diseases. We've seen Christians pass away, even during this COVID pandemic. We know that Christians are not exempt from cancer or car accidents or anything of that sort either. And that um, we suffer just like the unbelieving world suffers. But that's not what is particularly in view here when Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. What he's referring to is what he has said really just moments ago that same night. Though we studied it a couple weeks ago, Jesus just said it moments ago. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This is the tribulation that Jesus is talking about. So there's going to be this immediate crucifixion of Jesus, which is going to cause them some sorrow. But then, even after Jesus rises, even after he pours out his spirit, still there's going to be tribulation. There's still going to be sorrow. Because the disciples are going to go out and bear witness but they're going to be hated by the world as they bear witness. And then the hour is coming when people who kill them are going to actually think that they're doing a good thing and offering service to God. And so it's going to be really tough for Jesus' followers. In Psalm 2, we read of God intending to set his king on Zion. But in verse 2 of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. There is going to be this clash between the Lord's anointed, His king, and the kings of the earth, they're going to be continually clashing until Christ returns and brings His victory to consummation. And so there's going to be in the immediate context, the disciples are going to experience pain and sorrow tomorrow when Jesus is crucified. And we, of course, don't share in that pain. We weren't there outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified, confused and bewildered as to how the Messiah could die. And maybe this wasn't the Messiah after all. And we had thought he was the one to redeem Israel, but I guess maybe we were wrong. We, we didn't experience that sorrow. But we experienced the sorrow and the tribulation spoken of in John chapter 16 and verse 33, where we're on team Jesus we're on the team of the king whom God has set in Zion. And there is another team, which is the team kings of the earth. And that team is against this team. And this is how history is playing out. There is the hatred of the world. 
the persecution of the saints. As we talked about last week and the week before, it is not necessarily physical for us right at this time. Um, it is for so, some Christians in some parts of the world. For us at present in Barbados, it's not, and we thank God for that. But it could well be. Nevertheless, there's a lot of ideological hostility at the very least, which can give fruit under the right circumstances to literal physical persecution. In this tribulation, we share. Now, having looked at this is the pain that Jesus presents to his disciples, the sorrow that Jesus presents to his disciples in this passage. We have to look at what Jesus tells us will come forth from the pain. Because remember, he says that the pain that his disciples are going to experience is going to be like the pains of childbirth. That sorrow gives way to joy. Now, as a framework, as we think this through, let's distinguish between two things right now so that we think clearly. Let's distinguish between something that is logically consequent and something that is temporally consecutive. Those are not as confusing phrases as they might sound at first. Logically consequent just simply means that something logically flows from or depends on something previous to it. Temporally consecutive is like this happens first and then that happens. Okay, so something could be logically consequent but happened before. For example, you can't sleep on Monday night because of something exciting that's going to happen on Tuesday. So your sleeplessness on Monday night is logically consequent to whatever it is that's happening Tuesday, which has you fired up. So even though it's not temporally consequent, Monday night comes before Tuesday, it's nevertheless logically consequent, even though it happens before, even though it's not temporally consecutive. Now, something could be logically consequent, but happen much later, and you don't perceive the temporally consecutive um, pattern at play, at least immediately. For example, somebody may develop a bad liver, an unhealthy liver in middle age, which is a result of drinking, heavy drinking in one's youth. So it's not like you drink too much on Friday night and on Saturday your liver's shot. But many years later, your liver's shot. Right? So it's logically consequent, even if it's not temporally consecutive, and there's a lot of intervening events in the meantime. Or, for example, you invest some money, and then it pays off after many years. It's not like Tuesday you put money in the bank, Wednesday you're rich. Right? Or money in your investment, and Wednesday you're rich. Imagine if someone had bought early, early shares in Apple. Maybe invested $100 in Apple when it was first publicly traded a couple of decades ago. And then forgot about it and went to college and worked their job and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden they get this call many years later like, hey, remember that investment? Now it's worth X amount. Right? It's logically consequent even though it's not temporally consecutive. There's a lot of intervening things that have happened in the meantime. So keep those, keep those things distinct, distinct and distinguishable in your mind. They're not the same thing. We're looking at what is logically consequent um, to the pain. So what the pain brings forth. 
it might not be temporally consecutive. In other words, it might not be the pain happens and then the next day this happens. But as a result of the pain, what is logically the consequence of that pain? As bringing forth a baby is logically consequent to being in labor. Okay. So with respect to the crucifixion, what is... What comes forth from it? Well, many sons are brought to glory. As Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 puts it. God sends His only begotten Son into the world. That whoever believes in Him should become a son. Remember what we read in John chapter 1. At the beginning of John's Gospel, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. God, through the crucifixion, brings many sons to glory. He causes... Many people to be born again, as John chapter 3 puts it. And another word for being born again is regeneration, as you will remember. Being made new. Without the crucifixion, there could be no regeneration. There could be no new birth. There could be no becoming sons of God. Now, this is why I distinguish between what is logically consequent and what is temporally consecutive. Because there were people who were alive before Jesus was crucified who were born again. We talked about that last week. Abraham was born again. Isaiah was born again. Moses was born again. David was born again. So on and so forth. They were already regenerate people before Jesus was crucified. But God could not have justly counted Abraham as his friend. Or counted... David or Moses or Isaiah as his sons if it was not for the crucifixion. Those men had sin that needed to be dealt with. Those men needed their sins atoned for. And unless Jesus had been crucified, for God to give them the grace of regeneration, the grace of adoption, it would have been unjust without the crucifixion. So God, through Christ, by sending Jesus as a second Adam, as a representative, the way that the first Adam was a representative, and we all fell in Him and became guilty in Him and corrupt in Him, by sending Jesus as a second Adam to live righteously so we could be righteous in Him and to bear our penalty so that our sins could be punished in Him. God brings many sons to glory. This is a logical consequence of the cross. Even if people experience the grace of regeneration and the grace of adoption temporally before the cross. This adoption, this new birth puts us in a new relation to the Father. As 
verses 26 and 27 teach of, of uh, John chapter 16 teach us in that day Jesus says you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God when we are born again when we are adopted into God's family when we become his sons we enter into a new relation to the Father. He is not behind a curtain that we may, through which we may not enter to speak with Him and to present our request to Him. When we trust in Jesus Christ, when we experience the new birth, when we are adopted, we have access to approach the Father directly. As we saw last Sunday evening, the curtain into the most holy place and the tabernacle was torn in two from top to bottom. We may go in. We may speak to the Father as our Father. Jesus will not act as an intermediary in this new relationship, passing along our message to the Father. We tell Jesus and then He tells the Father. No, Jesus is telling us that we may have direct access to the Father by virtue of this new relationship. Now, in case anyone was wondering, incidentally, this actually doesn't undermine Christ's intercession and priestly work for us and render Jesus redundant. Quite the opposite. It's because of Jesus' intercession and priestly work for us that we have such access to the Father to speak with Him directly. Now, let's, let's move on. So, the first thing that is logically consequent to the pain of the crucifixion is that many sons are brought to glory. The second thing that is logically consequent to the crucifixion is that there is going to be a new creation for the many sons to live in. In Romans chapter 8, Verses 19 to 22, we read this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why, why is that? Because when God brings many sons to glory and gives them their resurrected bodies, revealing them in that way, they're going to need somewhere to live. And so creation itself has a vested interest in many sons being given new bodies. Because all of a sudden then, what's going to happen in verse 20, is that the creation, which was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, creation itself will be set free, Romans 8.21, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when the many sons who have been brought to glory experience the consummation of their being made new and they get their resurrected bodies, they're going to need somewhere to live. And then the creation itself will be made new to accommodate them. And they will share in the freedom of the children of God at that time. The freedom from corruption and decay, which it, it, like the children of God, had previously been subject to. Now, 
I want to point out to you something very interesting. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world. Now, it's irrelevant to our point this morning what he says after that. It's that phrase, new world, that I want to draw your attention to. If you have an ESV, look at the footnote. The footnote in the ESV says Greek, in the regeneration. The ESV has translated a Greek word as new world. But the Greek word is the same Greek word that is used for regeneration. So what's going to happen is that not only are we going to be regenerated as a result of the work that Jesus is about to do at the cross, but also the world itself, the creation itself, the physical universe itself is to be regenerated. To generate is to create, right? It's the same root word that we get the word Genesis from. The beginning, the creation. Now, let me just read you a few words here. See if you can recognize where this comes from. In the beginning. What's, it, what's in your mind? Someone shout it out. Alright? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. You see how John really is using a lot of this, the same language, the same imagery. We, see, we need to see what Jesus is doing in John as a regenesis, as a regeneration, both of people and of a world. Jesus acts as a second Adam, which I've stressed a few points this morning, at a few points this morning. In Genesis 3, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Now, we don't find a parallel or contrasting verse in the New Testament. But theologically, we could say that it's as if God says to the Christ, the second Adam, uncursed is the ground, regenerated is the ground because of you. Just as creation itself was subjected to decay and corruption because of the sin of the first Adam, it is the second Adam who makes it new. And so, as a result of, and again, this is logically consequent to the cross, 
even the world itself will be made new. Again, there's lots of intervening events and activities. It's not like Jesus died on that Good Friday so long ago, and then on Saturday, it was the new heavens and the new earth. At this point, there's over 2,000 years of intervening events. But when all things are made new in the end, we'll look back and be like, it was because of the sorrow of the crucifixion. And so it's logically consequent, even though there's a long intervening period. So, the sorrow of the crucifixion is going to give way to the joy, the birth, the rebirth, the regeneration, the sonship, the born again of people, and the work, the physical material creation. Now, let's shift gears and, and look now at what flows from the persecution, the tribulation in John 16. Verse 33, remember there was two aspects to the sorrow. There was the crucifixion, which was immediately going to happen, which the disciples that Jesus was speaking to were about to experience. And then there was the tribulation that Jesus speaks about in verse 33. What logically flows from that? Two things. The first is holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 6, we read this really interesting and pregnant phrase. It says, Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, what does that impl imply? It implies that if we're going through trials, they're necessary. Necessary unto what? Well, we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God uses the, the trials and the tribulations that we go through to refine us. And this is exactly what 1 Peter Develops in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, right? The purifying of fire is applied to the purifying of the genuineness of our faith. We grow, we develop, and so on and so forth. This is one thing that comes from the tribulation that we experience. Another thing is victory. And this is in verse 33. Jesus says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Hendrickson, one, one of the um, commentators that I read regularly on the Gospel of John, says that um, this is like one mountain climber who's maybe more experienced and, and stronger and better gets to the summit and is able to shout down to his struggling companion. Don't be afraid. I've reached the summit. It is possible. Right? And he gives, he gives encouragement 
to his fellow mountain climber to persevere. Like we shared in the fate of the first Adam, when he became guilty and corrupt, we also became guilty and corrupt. So we shall share in the fate of the second Adam. He will go through the sorrow, through the crucifixion, through the tribulation, to the other side. And will come out not conquered, but conquering. Not defeated, but victorious. In this clash of the kings of the earth and the king whom God sets in Zion, the king whom God sets in Zion wins. And we, on his team, will win with him. We will share in the fate of the second Adam. And we will be resurrected after we die. After they kill the body, Jesus will, God, pardon me, God will raise up our body. We shall share in the fate of the second Adam. And so Jesus again is preparing his disciples for the events that are just about to happen. Just on the cusp of happening on this night that he's talking to them. The very next day they will have sorrow. And for the rest of their lives, in some sense, they will have sorrow. Jesus says that they will also have joy. But the tribulation is going to persist. In fact, we know that 11 of the apostles were martyred. And so, of course, there was lots of sorrow in their lives. There was tribulation. But Jesus is telling them that, don't worry, through the sorrow, after the sorrow, consequent to the sorrow, consecutive, even if it's separated by several millennia, don't worry though. It's like a woman giving birth. There's pain, there's sorrow, but it's going somewhere. It's getting, it's getting us somewhere. As a consequence of the sorrow that you're about to undergo, you will be made new. The world will be made new. God's going to be making you holy in it and through it. And I'm going to strike a death blow to the kings of the earth and the prince of the power of the air tomorrow. And I'm going to bring it to a consummation at the end. And as a consequence of what I'm doing tomorrow... All of this is going to ensue. Even if it's spread out in terms of when it actually happens. Some of it's going to happen immediately. Some of it you're going to have to wait at least 2,021 years for. But as a result of what I'm going to do tomorrow, there's going to be life that comes out of the pain and the sorrow. So take heart. This is what Jesus is doing in this passage. It really is because of Christ, the second Adam, and because of the sorrow that He willingly undertook for us in His humiliation and in His death that all of the benefits that we enjoy and the blessings that we are to experience from God come to us. As I've said many times before and will say again many times, Christ Jesus is like the neck of the hourglass through which everything that the Father intends for us to have must pass through. 
Everything is logically consequent to the sorrow that Jesus is about to experience tomorrow and, and the sorrow that that's going to cause the disciples. Everything stems from that and flows from that work of Christ, bringing His Messiahship to consummation by fulfilling that work that was appointed for Him. Not only to live in our place, but also to die in our place so that as He was raised, we might be raised also.